Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. If you're a guest with us, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. And for all of you, you can join me in the book of Ephesians. And we'll be looking at a section from the very beginning of chapter 6 there. We'll read that together in just a few moments. Uh, but let's pray together first. Our Father, we come to you as your sons and daughters through Jesus. And we're here to hear from you. And we thank you that you're not silent and that you love to speak and that you've given us the Bible and that your spirit speaks it afresh as we read it. We hear your voice through your word. So we thank you. We pray that you would accomplish your powerful purposes through your word. We know that when you spoke creation into existence, uh, everything was made. You said, let there be light and there was light. You speak into our hearts to shine light, to give us newness of life. And we pray that you'd speak afresh this morning that we might be transformed to see you as who you are in Jesus and to be satisfied by you and to be changed. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we just spent two Sundays considering the topic of marriage from Ephesians. And this morning, we're going to see how Jesus can be central to how parents and children relate. So really, we can think of this as a three-part uh, series on family life within the book of Ephesians, and this is the third, uh, first two weeks considering marriage and now family life. And this text really infuses what could be perceived as kind of just the mundane aspects of family life. It infuses it with significance and hope. Jesus can forgive us for our failures in our family lives and transform us and transform the hardest situations and give hope. So this message like this text itself, is for children, it's for parents, and it's for the whole church family. So this is most directly applicable to parents and children because that's who's addressed in this text, but it also has implications for everyone. This, this letter was written to a church family, so everyone gets to over here because the church really is um, the place where we help one another fulfill these expectations. And the church is a spiritual family filled with spiritual fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. So even if you don't have children, or even if even now you're in a season of deep longing and sadness because you've longed to have children and that's not yet happened, this text still holds out a positive vision for you, for discipling other people. You know, Paul, the one who's writing this, didn't have children that we know of, and yet he often referred to his role as that of a spiritual father. So you can invest in making disciples and mentoring spiritual sons and daughters. And for families, I included a list of resources in the news sheet this morning, so you can just kind of pull that out and glance at it. I'll reference that just a couple times. But Christina and I have been so helped by these resources that are listed on there for you. I remember when we first started having um, kids, I just blocked out a few months and just read. I just asked people, what are the best books on parenting you've read? And I just read three of them, and it completely changed me, and it was, I'm so grateful, and I've gone back to them over and over um, and read new things. So please do uh, use that resource guide. Most of the resources on there, almost all of them are at our resource corner as well. So that's for you. So let's read this text together. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, 
that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. This is a very Jesus-centered vision for family life. You can see it with the repeated focus on him. Children are to obey their parents in the Lord. And whenever Paul uses that phrase, the Lord, he's most often referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. So not just obey and honor your parents, obey your parents in Christ, in, in the sphere of his influence. And parents are to raise their children with the instruction of the Lord, not just instruction, but the instruction of the Lord Jesus Christ from him and about him. So this text really exists to fill churches with Christ-centered families. And so we'll just follow the two parts of this text in order. First, children, and then parents. So first, children. The heart of this exhortation to children is to obey and honor your parents. Now, before we look more closely at that command, let's just step back and consider the significance of that first word. Paul is directly addressing children here. This reflects the incredible value that the Bible places on children from the very first page. The Bible shows that every human being, young or old, in the womb or in a nursing home, is made in God's image. And so, when Jesus came, His disciples, shaped by their own culture that was influenced by the Bible, but they missed so much of it, they were shooing children away from Jesus. And Jesus rebuked them and said, let them come to me. He used children as an example of because, because of children's kind of humble, trusting disposition. That's what it looks like to trust in Jesus as well. So children, for those of you who are in this room, if you feel overlooked, Jesus does not overlook you. He values you and He loves you. And the fact that Paul's addressing and teaching children directly here shows us two things. So here are two observations from this. First, this shows us that the Bible addresses children. It's striking that Paul directly addressed them here. He didn't say, parents, here's what you need to make sure to teach your children to do, Um, although that's implied. Um, He said, instead, he's writing this letter to the church, And he said, okay, now children, this one's for you. And he spoke to them directly. So children, as soon as they're able, should be encouraged to engage with God's Word. This is why we value Sunday school classes here. We love having adults teaching children directly from the Bible and about God in their classes. So for those of you who serve, many of you are not in this room because you're serving now, thank you. Thank you for bringing the Bible to bear on the children of our church families' lives. So this is why we also want to encourage parents to be reading the Bible and engaging the Bible with their children. So I've included that list of resources for you to consider how, how for age appropriate, you might use a, a storybook Bible for a while, um, but then move to some sort of direct Bible engagement as well. Um, so you can look at that uh, resource for recommendations on parenting in general, resources for having your children engage with God's Word, or for you to engage God's Word as a family. So that's the first observation, that the Bible directly addresses children. And that has a lot of implications. The second observation is this, is that children were taught as part of the same gathering and event with their parents. So we can infer from this text, and others like it, that there's an event here 
And there's a time when children and parents, and really together with the whole church family, are hearing God's Word. So children are addressed directly here, and they're also overhearing their parents being addressed by God's Word. The children are hearing what their parents are called to do in life and vocation in their home. So, and they're instructed directly right alongside their parents. So one New Testament scholar made this observation. He said, it's significant that Paul addresses them directly and not through their parents. This implies that they are present when the community assembles to worship, hear the reading of the Word, and to receive its teaching. So this is why we value having children join us for the first half of our service. It allows for children and parents to sing and to pray with, together with the whole church. This is why we also value having high school students join us for the sermon, um, which they do once each month and sometimes um, in addition to that. So these observations are really two values, aren't they? The first value is teaching children and youth the Bible because God's Word addresses them. And the second value is having a shared experience as a church under God's Word together. Now, different churches bring together those two values in different ways. Some churches have children present for the whole service, including the sermon. Other churches do that, but they'll have an additional time before or after the service or other times for age-specific gatherings. And, you know, we've talked about this at times um, as elders and pastors. We value having all generations together for the whole service, and yet we also value age-specific teaching directed at children um, in that way as well. So, you know, we just continue to think through how to hold those values together. The Bible gives us the values, and it just helps us to have a posture of flexibility with how we carry them out in practice. Now, here's the actual teaching that's directed to the children in particular. So, there's two commands given. The first command, verse 1, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And by the way, um, for those of you who don't have children in the room right now, it would be helpful just to read this text with them later so that they can hear this even addressed to them directly. I realize we, you know, I engage with the Bible with my boys all the time, um, and then I realize, you know, we haven't actually read this text to them. So we had a great discussion about that and reading it to them. So here's the, the first command, to obey your parents in the Lord. And I love that it says in the Lord. This gives children a higher calling than just obeying parents. Right? Children, it means that you obey the Lord by obeying your parents. And for those of you with children, it means that your children have a higher calling than obeying you. They have the opportunity to obey the Lord by obeying you, and they should be told that that's actually the framework that they can have because there's an ultimate authority that's over you and the children, the Lord Jesus. So this also means, by the way, that uh, parents have a qualified authority. Really, it's an authority under the authority of Jesus to call children to obey the Lord, and that involves obeying the parents, but not to obey parents if they tell their children to sin. Jesus is the authority. And it's a, it's a temporary authority. It's really to train children to become more directly involved in obeying the Lord Jesus apart from their parents, right? To, to launch them, to bring them, bring them up. But I just love this vision of calling children to have a direct engagement with Jesus, even in the obedience to, to parents. And the reason given for this command is straightforward, for this is right. So it's straightforward, but it does assume something massive, doesn't it? 
right? It assumes that there is an objective moral standard, that there's a moral framework to reality, that God has structured it in a particular way. He's created families, and He's given parents authority to lead their children. The second command here is broader. So, in verse 2, you can see he's quoting, and he's quoting from the Ten Commandments here, honor your father and mother. This actually applies to all children, whether younger or adults. It applies to 30-year-olds. It applies to 60-year-olds. It applies to everyone here who is a child, and especially who have parents alive who can still have this child-parent relationship to some degree. Now, this isn't about obeying because that authority is… is Uh, left behind as the children become adults, but it is about honoring, right? To honor is to show serious respect. It's to express value, treat someone as valuable. So, what does it look like practically for all of us who still have parents or a parent alive that we can relate to? Well, first, let's consider for younger children. You are called to respect and obey your parents, You're called to let them do their job, which is to train and instruct you. So, one way to honor them is to thank them for caring for you, to thank them for teaching you about Jesus, to thank them for reading the Bible with you, to thank them for apologizing when they fail, to thank them for sacrificing to help you grow. And those are things that we can thank um, at, at any age, parents who did do those things for us as well. Well, second, for those of us who are adult children, if you have parents who are still alive at any age, what does this look like for you? Well, here are some ideas. Speak honorably about your parents. Put a seatbelt over your criticisms, both in their presence and when you're talking about them. Seek their advice and hear their perspective even if you don't agree with it. Visit them and let them visit you. And if you have children, let them have time with their grandchildren. Help them financially. 1 Timothy 5.8 says this incredible statement, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith. So, you can call yourself a Christian, and Paul would say, how are you taking care of those who are your family? If you are not taking responsibility to care for them, you are denying the faith. It it just calls your whole framework and your profession of faith into question. Because the Lord cares for you, how can you receive His extensive care and completely cut off from care those whom you're responsible for? Care for their physical needs. There's a trend um, of people who simply drop off their parents at a nursing home or other care center, and they just functionally abandon them. And it leads to deep pain that some parents feel in those later years when they should be honored for a life well-lived. So, I'm so grateful for our ministry to Zionsville Meadows and those of you who have served there and do serve there on Sunday afternoons and other times where you're caring for other brothers and sisters in the faith and others, many of whom have been neglected by their family. All right, let's move on to the vision for parents now. So, that's to children. How about parents? Well, it's essentially this, disciple your children. He adds, he addresses fathers in particular here. I don't think he's excluding mothers, but it is significant that he calls out fathers 
uh, in particular. Throughout the Bible, fathers were viewed as the primary leaders of the home. They bear the responsibility for the well-being of their family. Now, that's very different than much of our culture, and it helps us, it would help us to realize just how this has happened over time. One of the biggest changes that happened was uh, with the Industrial Revolution. So before then, a father's work life and home life were often intertwined and often overlapped, and fathers and mothers shared many of the responsibilities of raising children. But then after the Industrial Revolution, a man's place of work shifted largely outside of home life. A father would go to work, and a mother would stay home to raise the children. And that split, it's just important to know that historically, that was revolutionary, just absolutely revolutionary. Um, a father then became increasingly absent from the task of raising children, and they become disengaged, and many still are, and many uh, expectations at work and commutes for work can make it even harder because it, it eats so much time, and then it requires, it, it, it's emotionally exhausting as well, so then we feel like we don't have anything left for a family. So it's just important to recognize this wasn't always the case, and, and we should be uh, grateful for any, anyone who's helping us in life just think through how to overlap these aspects of our lives a little more, because now it's common for both a father and a mother to go out of the home for work. And so raising children is often left to someone outside of the family. And since single-parent families have become increasingly common, many grandparents are also now raising their grandchildren. Now, we should be incredibly grateful for those who are stepping in when the need arises, as many of you are. It's a noble calling to be able to partner with parents in raising children, and it's incredibly valuable, and I'm glad you're doing that. It's also important to note, though, that it's, it's revolutionary that that's now the norm. So, men, those of you who are fathers, you have an opportunity to consider how you might recapture the vision if you haven't already. The main calling here is this. You are called to help your children follow Jesus which is what discipleship's all about. So let's consider this, this responsibility. Paul addresses fathers here and says, you have something not to do and something to do. And this applies to fathers and mothers. So something not to not do and something to do. There's a negative statement and a positive one. Let's look at the negative first, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. Paul said something similar in his letter to the church at Colossae. He wrote in Colossians, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. So this is about how our actions and words uh, can lead to our children becoming angry or discouraged. So here's some ways that we can provoke our kids to anger. So there's many. Um, just about a month or two ago, I started making a list of all of my temptations and things that I have done that can lead my children to become discouraged or angry, and it was extensive. So I'll just give three of the main ones here, and I encourage you to make a list um, of your own of additional ones or talk together. But here's three main ones. First, we provoke them to anger when we are hypocritical. Your example and your integrity matter to your kids. Right? If you tell them to respect, fathers, for instance, if you tell them to respect your, their mother when they don't see you respecting your wife, uh, they can come to resent that command. 
if you tell them to stop yelling, but you're yelling about it. They could become bitter because it looks like this doesn't apply to you because you're telling them to do things that you have no intention of doing yourself. But on the other hand, if you call them to be peaceful and you are calm, then that helps them obey. If you ask them to clean up a room and you engage in that with them and they know they see you cleaning and you're inviting them to join you, that's encouraging to them. You're modeling that for them. So this, we provoke them when we're hypocritical. Second, we provoke them if we never apologize. We don't need to be perfect parents, but we do need to be humble. We need to be sincere. So what happens if you never apologize to children? I know some of you just from conversations grew up in a home where you never heard a parent get, look you in the eye and say, I am sorry, will you forgive me? Without making excuses, without blaming it on you. Um, so what happens if we never apologize to our children? Well, it communicates to them that they're under authority, but you're not. Right? It communicates them to, that, to them that you are not under Jesus' authority, though you expect them to be, and you expect them to be under your authority as well. It's as though you're saying, you need to obey Jesus, but I don't have to. Because when I don't, apparently it doesn't matter. So, but a parent who knows how to say, I'm sorry, can be one of the greatest gifts to a child because it says, we both need the grace of our Lord. Uh, I need you to forgive me, and I need the Lord to forgive me as well. Third, you provoke them when you don't encourage them. One of the reasons kids get, get exasperated is when parents always ask for obedience and they never give encouragement. They feel like they can just never please them. You give a command, they do it. No great job, no well done, no I'm so proud of you. Just, okay, expectation met, here's another one. And then when they fail, of course, they'll get discouragement from you, right? And so parents should just shower their kids with affirmation and encouragement. I'm so saddened when I hear of people, maybe many of you who grew up in a home where a father, for instance, never said, I love you. Um, the home should be filled with affection, looking each other in the eye, saying, I love you. I'm so grateful to be in your life. What a gift this is. What a privilege to be together. Uh, it's deeply sad where children grow up in a home where they never feel enjoyed by their parents. But if you fill your kid's bank with this currency of encouragement and affirmation, then you can make withdrawals without provoking them. But if you're making withdrawals and there's nothing in there, then you're going to provoke them and not be surprised when they're embittered or angry or frustrated. So there's many more. We'll stop with those three main ones. Let's now move to the positive command. Paul gives a strategy for discipling our children at the end of verse 4. So instead of provoking them, rather bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, of the Lord Jesus. So bring them up, right? That means let's be intentional about this, right? Many parents need to rethink their work-life balance to more carefully engage in this process of discipling their children or continually rethink it as seasons change, as children's development changes, as seasons at work change, just constantly rethinking, okay, what's wisest for this next season of life, for these next few months, or this next year? It's a limited season of life, right? We just have a small window of time. For those of you with kids at home, a small window 
that's going to be gone quickly. Christine and I recently just kind of drew up on this uh, whiteboard kind of thing that we have uh, near our kitchen and just wrote down the, the years from this year, you know, down to 20 or so and listed our boys next to it and just how old they're going to be at all these years and then marked, you know, empty nest. Um, that's, it's going to happen quick. But it was really, hap- it was really um, helpful to just look at it and then say, okay, this is a season. It's going to be gone. How can we not waste this? We're, talking about every, we're right in years. What do we want to do this year? At what age of the boys do we want to teach them certain things? And then when it's empty nest, we sure want to make sure that our hearts are still knitted together because we don't want to wait for the kids to leave. And I've heard this so many times, and maybe this is your, your story, and encourage you to find help um, with counseling or with one another if this is you. But the kids leave, and then you look at each other and think, who are you? And I'm not sure I want to be with you. Right? We do not want that to happen. So we got this window. How do we, how do, we do this well? It's, it's fleeting. So how do we bring children up in the instruction of the Lord in this limited season? Well, discipline and instruction, it's about training and teaching. Intentional training, intentional teaching. And the key phrase here as well is in the Lord. So this is about intentionally providing a Christ-centered upbringing for your children. It's about keeping Jesus central. So this is not just about making sure our kids are well-adjusted. It's not just about making sure our kids are great at sports. It's not just about making sure our kids can get scholarships. This is fundamentally about helping them know and follow Jesus. And those other things may well be important for certain kids, and we want to encourage that because because as we follow Jesus, we learn that all of life is important, and learning is important, and relationships are important, and being a well-adjusted human being is important. But Christ is at the center of this. So this is about uh, having a, pervasive, uh, a pervasively Christ-saturated home. Christine and I were convicted about this recently. Um, sometimes Christians can look at other pockets of our culture, you know, and call it secular, Right, secular can be defined in different ways or have different aspects, but in one sense, it's about the absence of God, right? Just not taking God into consideration. And then we realized how much of our home life is secular functionally, meaning how many hours go through a day where we don't bring up God? How many topics do we talk about and we don't connect it to God? Um, how many hours go by without us mentioning Him? So the question then is, how do we train and instruct in the Lord? How do we disciple our kids to know and love and follow Jesus? Here's two main categories that have helped me. I hope they help you to think about. Patterns and moments. So we can establish patterns or rhythms in our life, and then we can also use spontaneous moments. So first, patterns or rhythms. The most essential pattern is to read God's Word and pray together, to be together and hear from God through His Word, let God talk to us as a family, and to then talk to Him. That's what Bible and prayer are about, right? It's not just about spiritual to-dos and checklists. Um, It's about together as a family, hearing God speak through His Word, and then thanking Him, asking Him to help, confessing sin, talking to Him. So if you don't already do this and you have... Um, this family life, make that a daily non-negotiable. The actual way in which you do it, of course, can change, but just prioritize time for reading the Bible or a Bible storybook, depending on age and prayer together. Outside of this, here's other patterns. You can work through a catechism to help grow theologically, like the New City Catechism. You can memorize Scripture together, 
maybe a verse a week over breakfast, if you have that together. You can talk at dinner with older children about ethical issues at school in their, in their life, you know, situations they experience. Just talk through it together. Help, help one another understand how to think through their day and things that happen in light of Jesus and the Christian worldview. So first, there's patterns. And then second, moments. Deuteronomy 6 gives us a great vision for what this looks like. So here's Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, and the following. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So that may sound familiar. And then it says this, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. What a striking word. Not just you shall teach your children, you shall make sure they know. You personally shall teach them diligently. All sorts of intentionality and effort and energy diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. So this is pervasive throughout the day, moments. There's patterns there, and there's also moments there. See, so we connect everything to God. When we see a frog, whether we're alone or others, in our minds, let's draw attention to God's creativity in making such a creature even if we don't know the purpose exactly, and with, with children, help them see. Look at that turtle. Look at that shell. That's awesome. It's going to be pretty hard to hurt that turtle. God did that. Um, connecting everything to God. Draw attention to His beauty when you see a sunset. The book of Proverbs gives us a great vision for this. Read that together as a family. Gives us this great vision for parents helping their children learn wisdom, which is about living well in God's world talking about money and friendship and self-control. When you see advertisements, right, take those opportunities to just uh, understand them. What's going on? What's that advertisement trying to make us feel? Why is it that we were totally content a moment before and now all of a sudden we feel like we need that? Do we need that? Um, When you see a movie, talk about the, the goodness that we see reflected in that, the goodness of creation. And talk about how we also see sin and the fall reflected in this movie, in this story. And then maybe even the hope of redemption and renewal um, through Jesus. How is that reflected in this movie? So don't miss also opportunities to talk about topics that are hard um, or challenging. We tend to delay, I think, topics, um, talking about certain topics far too long, like sexuality and like death. But they're normal parts of life, and so we need to help our children understand them and think about them as well. I'll never forget the time that I read a letter um, from Jonathan Edwards. I mentioned him last, last week, this pastor from the 1700s in New, New England, a letter that he wrote to his eight-year-old son. And I uh, just was thinking about it, and so I read it again this morning. I thought, I need to read this. So um, here's just part of his letter that he wrote to his eight-year-old son when he was away for a little bit. So there's the, I'll skip the first half of the letter filled with just affection and care. It's really encouraging. He's a sweet dad. And then he said he was, he's now telling his son about a, a friend who passed away, or a, a boy his age. So he said this, The week before last, on Thursday, David died, whom you knew and used to play with and who used to live at our house. His soul is gone into the eternal world. Whether he was prepared for death, we don't know. This is a loud call of God to you to prepare for death. You see that they that are young die as well as those that are old. David was not very much older than you. Remember what Christ said. 
that you must be born again or you can never see the kingdom of God. Never give yourself any rest until you have good evidence that you are converted and have become a new creature. We hope that God will preserve your life and health and return you to Stockbridge again and safely. But always remember that life is uncertain. You do not know how soon you must die and therefore have need to always be ready. I am your tender and affectionate father, Jonathan Edwards. So I read that, you know, when I'm in that stage of life where I have boys about that age and I thought, I don't talk that way much with them. And it, it changed me. Um, just to, to, to talk directly, you know, just even last week we were talking about death. I mean, maybe some of you know Kobe Bryant passed away. I love basketball and so I just I was grieved. Um, and so I thought, I'm going to tell my boys. And then we talked about it. And the, the implications there are, you know, he had a daughter, a 13-year-old daughter who died with him. And so one of my boys is crying at the table. And we got to process it together. So at one level, I mean, I could feel bad for kind of ruining the mood. But at another level, no, we, this is reality. And we're all helping one another process the reality of death together and the goodness of Christ and the need of knowing him. So that's an encouragement to you as well. So those are the ways we train and instruct our kids. Now, there is another context in which education happens with children, right? And that is whatever schooling option um, people choose for their children. So the only thing I want to say about that right now is that school choices are important, but they are in the category of wisdom, which means that the decision for what schooling option you discern may be best for your family is complex, right? There's no blanket, clear, right, and wrong. It depends on options available. It depends on financial ability. It depends on the children's wiring and so forth. And so I know that in a church setting, a majority of families could kind of gravitate in one season or another to a certain schooling option, and then others can feel kind of like they're outsiders, or maybe they can feel like judged, because even if no one says it, you can feel like, do they all think that that's best and I'm wrong for that? And so it's just super important to make sure that we're just aware of that as a church family, no matter it's this year or 10 years from now or 20 years from now, whatever option might seem to have the majority in a season, to just be open-hearted with one another and include others and not only hang out with people who maybe have the same schooling option as we do. Just be, and I know so many of you do this so well. So this is kind of an encouragement and all the more, but this is a, a temptation that can come without us even seeing it because it can just happen unless we're really intentional about it. And if you're wondering, what, is, what does Drew do? What does he think about this topic? You're, you're probably going to have a hard time figuring that out because um, we've participated in most of the options. In fact, right now we're doing public school and a homeschool-private school hybrid, and we, we might switch it up next year. So um, the most important issue is this. Are you, no matter what schooling option you choose, are you diligent to make disciples of your children? Are you intentionally discipling them? You are the one who's primarily responsible for that. And the schooling setting and option is just a part of it. Um, so are you, no matter what the, what the schooling option is, are you helping them process what they're learning in their school setting as a, as from a Christian worldview and helping them think through that? So the hope is that our children end up knowing, trusting, and following Jesus. We can't make them do that, but we're called to raise them in the instruction of the Lord. The hope is that, that at some point they would eventually be baptized and fully integrated into a local church. So I want to take a moment as well and just note something related to this. Maybe you wonder, 
When is it best to think about baptism um, for my child? So here, here's how we think about this um, as elders in general. Uh, a, few, a few kind of principles. First, we believe that children can start trusting and following Jesus from very early on. All right, God can give a new heart to anyone. We also believe that baptism should be upon a credible profession of faith. With children, that can take time uh, to be assured that the profession is credible. And since baptism is the responsibility of a church family and a community, it takes time for a church to be able to have confidence that one who's being baptized has a credible profession, just to know and to have confidence. So we don't prescribe a certain age, but we do believe that there can often be wisdom in waiting for baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we believe it's often wise to wait until, you know, early teen years, middle school, high school, to talk to children about uh, baptism, but there are certainly exceptions. And so we encourage I mean, the posture then is we encourage faith in children with a hopeful confidence. We don't have a skeptical posture, and, and we shouldn't have. No parents have a skeptical posture of kind of like, well, we'll wait and see. But neither do we feel a sense of urgency to rush. So for me, I tell my boys, uh, we'll wait for communion and baptism. It's hard for them because they see crackers and juice, and that looks like a good time. Um, and then I say, and then we're going to wait um, so we'll, I say, we'll wait for communion until baptism happens. And the next question is, well, okay, when can I get baptized? I say, and we'll wait for that until you're a bit older. Um, so, and I believe them when they say they believe in Jesus. And I also say, that's great. Let's keep trusting. Let's keep following. Let's keep growing. Let's keep learning. So if you want to learn more about this, the elders have recommended before a short article by Tim Challies. I have some copies available at the resource corner. We share that with uh, those who are in Discover ZF as well, so you might have already grabbed that. So a word uh, for fathers and mothers with children in the home. Fathers, this text reminds you of the uh, incredible value and dignity and importance of your calling. You are called to disciple eternal human beings that have been entrusted to your care. You are responsible for helping eternal image bearers of God, whom he loves dearly, more than you do, to learn and to know and to follow Jesus, to know this God who made them. So here's four things every child needs from a father from, in light of what we've been seeing here. They need, first of all, your attention. If your work takes you away from them a lot, it's your responsibility to make sure that you get time with them. You plan what seasons you can get more time with them. You find ways to overlap life through, through all sorts of creative ways if you have to, or include them in your day some, somehow. Second, they need your affection and encouragement. They are far more likely to, be, to become the kind of man or woman you hope for them to become through encouragement than through criticism. One of the most important keys to parenting, parenting is this. Enjoy your kids and let them feel your enjoyment of them. Let them feel your affection for them. Keep your affections warm toward them. Fight for that. And do all that you can to keep their affections for you warm. J.C. Ryle, a pastor from the 1800s, says, said, love is one grand secret of successful training. Try hard to keep a hold 
of your children's or your child's affections. Third, they need your instruction. They need you to teach them about Jesus and how to follow him and how to think through all of life in light of him every day. And fourth, they need your integrity. They need to know that you believe what you're saying. They need to know that when when you call them to pray, you pray. You're actually engaging with God. They need to know that, that you don't see yourself as perfect. And so you don't expect them to be perfect. They need to know what it looks like to live a life of repentance. They need to hear your apologies for when you have sinned against them. A word for mothers. There are several influences in our culture, um, Western culture, over the last 200 years that have led us to largely devalue the role of a mother. It's led us to interpret all sorts of things that mothers do as not very significant compared to other things. I love the way Emma Scrivener has helped us to see the wonder and the dignity of a mother's calling and role, and in particular, a mother of young children. So here are two different summaries of her day. It was a recent article she wrote. I found it really helpful. So the first is a glimpse of what comes to her mind about her day that makes her feel unimportant. It goes like this. So her husband comes home after doing all sorts of seemingly important things, you know, changing the world. Big stuff, right? He asks her what she did today, and she responds, um, I tried to stop our son from climbing into the washing machine, scaling the fridge, eating cat treats, taking off his diaper, pushing his finger into sockets, pulling the cat's tail, dropping plastic cutlery down the toilet. I pretended to be a garbage truck and a trash collector, drafted half an email, filled out forms for school, texted a friend, shopped, ironed, listened to a psalm, cooked lunch, which my son threw on the floor, made truck noises, scraped unidentifiable food stuff from the floor, replied to a message from my daughter's school saying she'd had a minor accident, a nosebleed caused by aggressive picking, (laughs) cooked dinner, wheeled out recycling bins, making garbage truck noises. So, I mean, in what she said to her husband was, you know, nothing, really. What'd you do today? Nothing, right? Because that's what comes to mind. But then she reflected back on her day and thinks about what really happened in light of Jesus, in light of the dignity of her calling. Here's what really happened. I cared for a little person who can't care for himself, subdued a little piece of earth, including some stubborn wrinkles, created a home, listened to words of life that fed my soul, completed essential administrative tasks, invested in my daughter's education, foraged, well shopped, for my loved ones, lavished my children with carefully chosen gifts in the form of after-school snacks, encouraged a struggler, walked all day with the living God, enabled my husband to share the gospel, executed an Oscar-worthy portrayal of a garbage truck. No matter what season of life you are in, you matter. And what you do matters. Good work, well done, glorifies God. And he's pleased by it. The work of raising up little image bearers is just incalculably incalculably important. So, these last few moments, just let's step back and think big picture. The home is designed by God to reflect God's parental love for us and His grace. 
The past two weeks, we've seen how marriage is a picture of the gospel, of Christ's love for the church and the church's response. And here we see that parenthood exists to reflect the fatherly and motherlike love of God. So here's what the first half of Ephesians told us, if you were here for it. It said that God is our Father. He is called the Father of glory. He adopts us into His family as loved sons and daughters through faith in Jesus. We now, as we trust and follow Jesus, have access to the Father through Jesus. And we pray and bow our knees to the Father. So in light of all of that from the first three chapters, when He addresses fathers here, that is the context we're to have in mind. It's this incredible context of grace. He's calling parents to cultivate an Eden-like home. He's calling on parents to, to create a home where there's an atmosphere of grace and of intentional disciple-making together. And that's really encouraging to fathers and mothers and children of any age, young or adult, because it means that even in all our failures at this, which are many and frequent, we have a Father in heaven who never fails, and He never fails to forgive us for our failures and to encourage us and to be incredibly patient with us and to discipline us in love and to welcome us to His heart. And we have the, the Son, our brother, Jesus, who died for our forgiveness. And we have the Holy Spirit with us to fill us and empower us to do this well. So this is just a beautiful picture that came from God, and we just have this great privilege to enjoy together and to help one another enjoy. So let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this beautiful picture of family life. We pray that you would empower and encourage those of us here who are parents with children in the home and encourage those of us who are children of any age to honor our parents while we still are alive with them. We pray for all the men and women, boys and girls here, uh, that they'd have this vision of a church as a family, a spiritual family as well, to encourage and bless and mentor and disciple others. And we pray that you would empower this by your spirit and give us this great joy as we fulfill this in the enabling power that you give for it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and receive a benediction from God's word before we go. This is from Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, May he equip us with everything good that we may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.